Today's episode is sponsored by Tego. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tego and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tego offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top medico-legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tego by visiting tego.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the part two anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele and I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan and today's episode is How Do I Breathe Part One, where we'll discuss airway scenarios with special guest Dr. Nadia Vargas. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. Dr. Nadia Vargas is an anaesthetist who works in public practice in Brisbane. Her interest areas include ear, nose and throat surgery, allergy testing for anaesthetic drugs and perioperative medicine. Nadia, welcome to Deep Breaths. Thank you. So, Nadia, today we're talking everything airways. We know our listeners are going to be super excited because we haven't actually had a chance to cover this topic yet. So, we're just going to start with your general approach to airway management. I might just do a full disclosure. I haven't done an airway fellowship as such. I just have a big interest in ENT surgery and I've done ENT regularly for the last six years. So everything I'm talking about today is based mostly on that experience. That sounds fantastic. Having worked with you, I think that's acceptable. We can, <laughs> we'll allow you to stay on the podcast today. So in general, I always recommend for Viva or SAQ approaches to follow a simple structure, define the problem, choose your solution and commit to it, which is particularly important in the Viva scenarios, and um, execute your plan and know what equipment you're going to need for that and what fits with what that is very important Mm -hmm. and if you have not experience with that particular equipment you want to mention you have to go back to textbook tells me this and this but probably knowing your sizes and that kind of stuff is the minimum Mm, and compatibility yeah that's that's fantastic so basically getting in and having a play with the equipment at work yes when you get a chance to see what fits with what and and, know what's on the difficult airway trolley at your institution yeah Mm, that's really good advice Now, we should add in here regarding equipment that Nadia gives an excellent talk at the Part 2 exam preparation course in Queensland, where she actually brings in and demonstrates a lot of the bits and pieces of airway equipment and how they fit together. Sadly, this podcast episode isn't a substitute for seeing her talk at the course, so if you get the opportunity, be sure to take it. Okay, so now we're going to run through eight different airway scenarios and use them to prompt discussion on the various types of airway difficulty that we might encounter both in the exam and real life and some strategies to combat these. So starting with scenario number one, we have a 44-year-old female patient that is presenting for a thyroidectomy. She has a multinodular goiter with a moderate amount of retrosternal extension. She is BMI 40, malampati 3 with a shortened thyromental distance of around 4.5 centimetres. She has not had a general anaesthetic previously. Oh my gosh, this is like my medical viral all over again. <laughs> Nadia, what is your approach? So that sounds a bit like a challenging patient. You obviously would want to take a little bit more history and examine her first. 
she sounds like she might be a difficult airway regardless of the goiter, mm. with some of the features she's presenting with. But I guess with the multinodular goiter and her BMI, it's quite important to elicit whether she has any symptoms that this is giving her any trouble. Mm. Um, so you'd p- particularly ask her whether she's experienced any dysphagia, any difficulty lying flat, any mm. dyspnea or any paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, whether she's noticed a change in her voice mm. and whether she had any other kind of upper airway symptoms that would concern you. There's a couple of options here. So I think a lot of people might want to proceed with an awake fiber optic. Mm. It would be very important to have a look at the CT scan that she's presented with as well to define where, if it's deviating the trachea, where exactly the narrowing is Mm. and then to how small of a distance does it narrow. Mm. However, there's um, pretty good evidence for goiters as long as it's not cancer that even mm. if it's quite a narrow trachea, you probably will be able to splint it open with a normal tube. Oh, that's interesting. Even if they do have some mild symptoms and even if they do have tracheal deviation. The other thing to think about here is that with the awake fiber optic, from a couple of cases we've had at our institution, it was actually m- trickier with the awake fiber optic because they couldn't navigate the acute angle. Mm. to um, push the mm. endotracheal tube down. That's interesting. And I suppose unless you've heard of people having that problem, it's not something you may mm. necessarily think of. That's fascinating. Mm. And if you wanted to keep all your options open, you could consider doing a spontaneous breathing technique for her. Mm. So is there any like scenario in which you would do an awake fiber optic, like preferred over response breathing technique? Like, are there any kind of, or is it just like you're kind of almost a gut feeling when you assess the whole patient and their symptoms and their scan? If they present with symptoms suggesting that she's actually getting symptoms of an obstructed airway, I would probably um, lean towards a spont breathing technique because I'd be concerned that they wouldn't be able to tolerate the awake Mm. fiber optic Mm. because once you have the scope down there, it might be looking at that cork in a bottle phenomenon where it's blocking off that little bit of airway that they were still breathing through Mm. and now they can't. And at that point, no matter how good your sedation, they will panic and it will be um, quite unpleasant and traumatic experience for both you and the patient. Mm. It's funny, I remember... When I was preparing for my part two exam, reading, I think it was a BJA article, I can't remember, but where they actually spoke in depth about the cork in the bottle phenomenon. And it's not something I'd ever really thought about until I read this. And it was like a light bulb went off, you know, it's mm. an awake fiber optic isn't just to get out of jail free card. It has its own problems. And yeah, I, I suppose mean, it's in imp- patient. Yeah, they feel like they're basically dying Suffer- because yeah. they're suffocating. Yeah, terrible suffer- yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So let's run through your spot breathing approach and I'll see whether my inexpert <laughs> strategy works or not. Sometimes it does, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> so how would you go about so, it? As always in anesthesia, there's a million ways to skin a cat. Mm, and um, what I follow um, is mostly based on the Strive High publication by Anton Booth, who's an airway expert here in Brisbane. So I do use the high floor nasal prongs. And normally the patient is pre-medicated with 0.2 milligrams of glycopyrrolate, 10 milligrams metoclopramide, 
And then before you start the propofol TCI, you can give a little bit of lignocaine, yeah. which often helps also with the burning sensation from the propofol. Mm. For the propofol TCI, the, this technique is normed to the MARSH model. That's where all the calculations have been done with. And that's what makes it quite easy to follow because you just start normally at two for the plasma level that you set. And then the minute the algorithm tells you that you've come within one of, of your set plasma concentration, you go up another one. So at that point, you're always two minus one equals one, you go up to three. Three minus two equals one, you go up to four. So is that comparing the plasma concentration and the effect site concentration? Yes, okay, which are cool. both fairly artificial concentrations, yeah. but... In terms of that incremental increase, um, it works best with the Marsh model because the Schneider tends to give a bigger bolus in the beginning, but then overall gives you less. That's right. So it's harder to kind of have that step up um, with the Marsh model. There's also, and it's not uncommon, it used to be uncommon, but I find more and more patients where you kind of run into that, you've reached a um, plasma concentration of about seven or eight, where you would normally expect them to be in a deep yeah. Uh, enough phase of anesthesia to tolerate laryngoscopy, which is normally your test. So mm. you would then see what view, great airway view you can get. And if possible, and the ENT surgeons are happy, you spray with cofenalcaine the vocal cords. Mm. And if you don't get a reaction to that, then that's the point in time you can hand over to the ENT surgeons. But if you are at that concentration, you still get movement or a reaction or you still see the vocal cords move, an option is to either dial in a little bit of remifentanil. Again, Mm. I would use the Minto model and just have a very small concentration because all you need is something to blunt it. Mm. And you also want something because the remi in itself is still fairly good at decreasing respiratory drive. So Mm. you might Mm. make them apneic and you need to watch them Mm. because the minute they stop breathing, the whole concept of the high flow nasoprong technique doesn't really work anymore. Mm. So you then have to decrease or shut off the remifentanil and potentially Mm. also decrease on the propofol. Mm. And then normally within 30 to 40 seconds, you can get them breathing and Mm. they have enough reserve with the high flow nasoprongs to kind of bridge over that period of time. But you also need to always be prepared to have a setup for an emergency airway that you might Mm. have to urgently do. Mm. So if you're really worried about a particular airway, I'd recommend having rocuronium drawn up Mm. or any other muscle relaxant of your choice, but something that works quickly. And and having some form of tube that is amenable to whatever the surgeons want to do. So Mm. smaller tube, reinforced tube, whatever Mm. um, is suitable for the surgery. There are also people who mix alfentanil yeah, that's how I was taught. Form. Yeah, and you can pretty much follow a similar technique. Mm. Um, and if you have someone who's maybe a bit more frail, or you're particularly worried about their airway, I would suggest halving the concentrations you're aiming for and just going in slower steps. Mm. Okay, cool. Yeah, I was taught to add. I think it was to a a fifty mil syringe of propofol to add half a milligram of alfentanil. 
And to, again, to do that stepwise approach. So, yeah, and but I think we have, went up at smaller increments. Yeah, yeah. and you would have 10 mics um, yeah. per meal then yeah. with that. Yeah. Um, and if you have someone who's young, fit and well, yeah. otherwise you could even add one milligram and exactly. end up with 20 mics per meal. So that gives you a little bit of variety in how you can dose it. Yeah. And same same rules really apply. And I think that technique works equally well. I think for the Strive High they because they did all the calculations yeah. um, they just didn't want a second agent that That's doesn't enough. follow the same pharmacokinetics in there yeah it just muddies the waters doesn't it when you start adding different things together but at the same time it's proper for sparing and, That's true. and as we've just discussed um, often you do find you get to those really high plasma levels and mm. you're still not quite right in yeah. the right plane yeah. of anesthesia so yeah so I suppose that's that's a good point to reinforce mm. that you know regardless of your technique know the limitations know what you have to do to overcome problems and commit mm. cool <laughs> yeah it's, that's interesting because i must say i tend to like run a little bit of remy as a baseline from the start oh, yeah. and i do an incremental pro before but mine's like even more conservative it's like <laughs> half a time but yeah no so i'll have to like go back and look at the um that yeah it's good to try different things right and see what works better and what works smoothly and so, what doesn't so what, what i find what is is best even for someone i would consider really elderly and frail in the beginning mm. maybe you'd set your starting point one mm. but definitely initially commit mm. to the one or two and have like okay. something to get it going because okay. if you keep it too little you might quite never get to mm. the place you want to okay. get yeah. to that's mm. good to know the other question i had is use of airway adjuncts obviously you've got your high flow going do you have any particular preference or anywhere between 30 and 70 liters or do you aim for 70 liters a minute on your high flow or so i would start when the patient's awake on 30 liters yeah. and then when they close their eyes go to 50 and then when they're properly, so once you start supporting their airway, so you either get chin lift or um, jaw thrust, mm. I would go to 70 litres and and then keep it at that. Um, it it gets very tricky. Um, I think we'll discuss laser a little bit later as well. Mm. Optiflow and laser is a very tricky subject at the moment mm. because officially they don't recommend using it for laser. You, we used to do it with a blender mm. and as long as you dial the FI2 down then you can still do that however if something happens <laughs> the company told you not to yeah. Mm. yeah yeah that's hard isn't it and so yeah and I was just going to ask about airway adjuncts because often when I do my spawn breathing technique I kind of test their you know how like how deep the patient is sometimes I'll pop a little nasopharyngeal in just to keep the airway patient and then maybe try a Gidel. I suppose you can't do a nasopharyngeal with the Thrive on I mean no so do you ever use adjuncts you pretty much just aim to like use manual support to keep their airway because that's really important right we need to keep the airway patient otherwise the high flow can become quite dangerous yeah yeah so I tend to not use nasopharyngeal when I use the Thrive or the high flows, but definitely if it's a little bit of a difficult airway or big jaw, it's going to be very exhausting to hold that mm. for the 10, 15 minutes mm, or 20 yeah. minutes. You need to get the concentration right. Then uh, definitely a good L because the whole concept of the high flow doesn't work, as you rightly said, mm. uh, unless you keep the airway open. And I also find that actually one of the trickiest periods is when you hand over to the ENT surgeons because... Mm regardless of what was planned and I'm thinking particularly about doing this for panendoscopies or where they put a suspension laryngoscopy Mm. in Mm. they're never quite ready and they never quite have the right suspension laryngoscope that's going to give them the optimal view Um, like it always seems to be a bit of a surprise 
And uh, while you hand over the airway to them, they then get busy with setting up instruments and um, screwing things in place. And and the whole time that airway is a bit forgotten about. And and so that's a period where you have to pay attention and potentially take Mm. over again, even though you formally hand it over to them. Because once they start desaturating because they lost their patent airway, it's very hard to get them back to the same level of safety that you had them Mm. on before. That's a good point. I've certainly had times where, as you alluded to earlier, we've had to bail. (laughs) So that could be um, just, yeah, just like literally giving them, you know, some muscle relaxant, just intubating them or 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 even just bag mask. You know, if they stop breathing, just bag masking them. And you can do that with the Gidel. And most, obviously, we know most patients are ventilatable. But the whole point of this is that we don't have to do that. (laughs) But, But, you know, sometimes we end up there, don't we? Well, depending on how long the surgery... So in this particular case, you would do the spawn breathing technique in order to exactly, see whether yeah. you could take over their breathing yeah. and yeah. whether it's a difficult yeah. view. And once you can, you're kind of in the mud. You're, and you're once safe you then. can, yeah. in this yeah. patient, you would probably... Because she's quite big, you would put, you would probably give her paralysis and then mm. put the breathing yeah. tube in. And to clarify... Sorry, sorry, I'm so sorry yeah. to interrupt. I just wanted to clarify, when you're talking about whether you can ventilate the patient and manage the airway mm. are you over ventilating them so allowing them to continue spont breathing but just giving them extra puffs to see if you can actually yes okay, so you cool. slowly take over their breathing Great. and um, if you can do that and you have a look mm. and think that the airway yeah. with a probably a video laryngoscope Great. is manageable then for the ease of intubation, yeah. unless you want to spray or topicalize quite a bit, I'd probably give her a little bit of paralysis just yeah. to facilitate putting the tube in. Fair enough. And the other thing to think about in this scenario yeah. is with a goiter, they probably will want to have a NIM tube and yes. they will want to do nerve monitoring later on. Mm. So again, should someone have embarked on the nasal awake fiber optic path <laughs> that might make their job um, a bit more <laughs> tricky. That's and true. And you'd obviously have to have a plan when you paralyze that she would need to be ready for a paralysis-free technique at some point mm. and that a NIM tube would mm. fit down there, which is the only thing you sometimes find with the goiters. If it's large and it's narrowing the trachea, that the uh, NIM tube, because it's based on a reinforced tube and mm. they tend to be more flexible and mm. floppy, mm. it might not necessarily be able to splint the airway Mm. as easily open as a normal PVC tube would be able to. Mm, That's good Mm. advice. Yeah, so I I think, I mean, yeah, just to clarify the point you made, it's a good point in this case is this is basically using a spot breathing technique as a effectively a test to see if you can manage the patient's airway, either ventilate them or, you know, preferably both. See their And once you've seen that, as you say, you can actually take over from them and know that you're pretty safe. It's unlikely to get a huge amount worse once you've given either a big dose of anaesthetic or some paralysis. There might be other scenarios, you know, we're talking about mediastinal masses and think a bit more complex where you don't want them, you know, where you don't want them to lose any of that sort of, you know, their own kind of negative pressure ventilation. So, you know, we won't talk about that now. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think I've, I've certainly had that scenario where it's got a bit, you know, a bit grubby and the patients are salivating, carrying on a bit. And and then, but once I've seen the vocal cords nicely with the CMAC, I'm like, okay, we can mm. <laughs> properly get you to sleep now and just, yeah. Absolutely. So, so yeah. mediastinal masses, particularly if they're intrathoracic and so even if you get the tube in without any problems, but you might not be able to ventilate them. Yeah. Um, this is very tricky mm. and, and very difficult to resolve. As same as kind of bronchopleural fistulas, big yeah. fistulas, small fistulas, you can probably get away, mm. but big ones. And that also means you're probably dealing with respiratory physician and um, mm. bronchoscopes and potentially rigid bronchoscopes, which mm. makes this technique very much harder mm. because it's there's still a difference if 
you just um, cause the stimulus of putting a tube down for 10 seconds or the ENT surgeons put a suspension laryngoscope down for 15 minutes or respiratory physicians put a rigid bronch down through the vocal cords, mm. which is pure metal, mm. for 30 to 45 mm. minutes. Mm. Mm. All right. And so, and we should just mention postoperatively, there's a couple of things we should keep in mind just while we're talking about thyroids. Yes. So, uh, with goiters in general, there's always a worry about tracheomalacia. It's incredibly rare. There's um, pretty good case series from Vanuatu where even though they had large goiters, the size of a baby's head essentially, mm. no one actually had tracheomalacia. Mm. Amazing. And it seems to go back to the same as with the narrowing of the trachea. So unless it's cancer that's got some invading features, it tends to be manageable. If they do have tracheomalacia, it's not clinically significant enough. But obviously anyone who's had thyroid surgery... When they go to recovery, they should, depending on what your institution uses, whether it's sutures or staples, but they should have an instrument taped to their pillow that's immediately available to either open those sutures or staples up. And there, there should ideally probably also be a memory aid that kind of reminds you what to look out for if you're worried about someone post-thyroid surgery. The UK has issued some new kind of memory aids where they talk about all the signs that we keep coming back to today. So difficulty swallowing, in this case, also obvious swelling, anxiety, which could be a sign of shortness of breath and anxiety because they seem to feel like they can't catch their breath and then they become tachypneic. And then the last symptom, as again, we're going to discuss multiple times today, is stridus. Mm. Strider is really uh, mm. five minutes to 12 at that point. Mm. And then I particularly like the pictures for evacuating and opening up the thyroid scar. Mm. So whether it's staple sutures, but it's very important to open up both fascias mm. and evacuate the hematoma from the deep fascia as mm. well because that's the one that's going to interfere with the breathing the most and mm. that should be able to be done in recovery on the ward or wherever there shouldn't be a delay mm. just because the patient has to go to theater for obviously revision mm. surgery the while the surgeon and the anesthetist get notified that's something that anyone should be able to do wherever they are in the hospital. Mm, that's good advice. So we will actually link to the Difficult Airway Society guideline for management of post-thyroidectomy hematomas in our episode notes. So if you want to know more, check it out. Okay, thanks Nadia for joining us for part one of your discussions on airways today. It's such a valuable topic. Um, so don't forget to claim CPD on this episode if you are a provisional fellow or consultant. And if you like what you hear, please rate us on your favourite podcast platform. Indeed, Spotify now allows ratings too. And you can always get in touch with us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. And we hope you can join us next time on Deep Breaths.